Tonight I want to wrap up our series on evangelism, and this is where we've been. We've spent five weeks so far. We looked at evangelism videos and critiqued them. We critiqued our own assumptions. Some of them we didn't even know we had. We kind of raised those. Morgan challenged us as he read through the book of Acts to look at words and deeds. Jeremy came up to try to disagree with them, but ended up, in my opinion, agreeing with a lot of what Morgan said. You know, by encouraging us to really be true disciples, that that really is the best method of evangelism. Last week, I challenged us to be believing and obedient disciples, not kind of non-obedient Christians or people who just don't know what they believe, so they just go along with it and do the acts, kind of like obedient non-believers. We also kind of summarized everything we had discovered in this series. And remember, this series wasn't intended to be, here's how we evangelize. It was really meant to step back and say, hey, there's something going on. We need to examine it because we're not evangelizing. So what is going on at a much deeper level? That's kind of what we've been doing. And I made the case last week that evangelism does involve speaking. That's the witnessing component that seems to be prevalent in many of the experiences. While you could do it a lot of other ways, any of those ways should involve speaking to some degree. Tonight, I want to look at the exclusive claim of Christ. I would argue that probably the most famous verse in the Bible to people who know something about it and people who don't, is probably John 3.16. So John 3.16 just says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But that is actually not the exclusive claim of Christ. But I want to put it up there because a lot of people think that's where we get this verse. It's not really the source. The verse I'd like to look at tonight is further in John. It's John 14.6. And I've taken it right out of the story. I've just kind of zoomed in on just the verse, and we're going to look at it a little bit more in context in a moment. But that verse, because in fairness, some of you may say, what do you mean the exclusive claim of Christ? What exactly are you talking about? So that there's no ambiguity. Jesus answered in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The survey I passed out tonight, I just wanted to see if any of you agreed with that statement, how you feel personally about that sentiment, and if it kind of lines up with your values. Let me show you, this very same question was asked in a broader survey. This is the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life. Periodically, they'll publish the Religious Landscape Survey for America. This was done in 2008, and they were asked a question very similar to the one that I put on your survey. The question that they were asked is, do you view your religion as the one true faith? In fact, on your survey, it actually said that my religion is the one true faith and it leads to eternal life. The other choice that you were given was that many faiths could lead to eternal life. That same exact question was given to all the people in the Pew Forum. Here's the results for evangelical Christians. 36% of evangelicals said, that their religion was the one true faith. 57% of evangelical Christians said that many religions can lead to eternal life. I find that kind of interesting. If you take scripture and the words that I just put up on the screen from the book of John at all seriously, it seems that there's a disconnect. Especially here if you're looking at evangelical Christians who have a reputation for taking Scripture a little more seriously than other traditions. 
57% of them think that many religions could lead to eternal life. That would seem to say, I don't believe that Jesus' exclusive claim to being the only way is true. Mainline Christians. If you don't know what a mainline church is, that would be like Presbyterian, Congregational, Methodist, I think Baptists are included, Episcopalian, Anglican, those kinds of churches. More denominationally based churches that have been around historically, 83% said that many religions could lead to eternal life. That's pretty high in my opinion. Here, you can actually put them up on the screen and compare different faith traditions when they were asked to answer do you agree that many religions can lead to eternal life? That was the question. The people who agreed the least were Jehovah's Witnesses. Only 16% of Jehovah's Witnesses agreed with that statement. The next least likely to agree were the Mormon Church. 39% agreed. Muslims, 56%. Evangelicals, 57%. Historically black churches, 59%. Orthodox Christians, 72%. Zoom down as you get down there, like 79% of Catholics agreed with this sentiment. In mainline churches, coming in at that 83%, they're in close company with Buddhists, Hindus, and other faiths. And I think the observation and the tie-in to evangelism is, does it seem interesting to you that the people who believe that statement the least are the most active in door-to-door -door evangelism? that the people who think that my religion is the one and only true way seem to be the ones that have the most incentive or the most desire to be knocking on doors or going on evangelistic missions in any way. And I'm not saying we don't do that, but they're very active. I would dare say more active than we are. Whether that method works or not, it's not the point. I'm just trying to point out that as we said last week, your belief does impact what you do. And I think actions begin to inform belief sometimes. But there's one other thing I'd like to point out. They actually separated out that if you're an evangelical attending church weekly, only 37% believed that many religions could lead to eternal life instead of 57%. So apparently going to church every week maybe influences your idea, or it could be the other way around, because you think that your religion is the only way you end up going to church more. I don't know which one informs the other. Now that sounds kind of heady, just putting up charts and graphs, but you know what? That's significant. What's the point of our faith if you were to believe that other faiths were just equally valid? You might have an answer to that. I'm not asking that as like, there's no answer. Tell me the answer if you have one. Maybe you're one of the people that believe that there are many paths and it just happens to be the one that fits your life the best. That seems to be what a lot of these people are saying. Here's a different survey, by the way. This is the National Survey of Youth and Religion that kind of asked it in a different way. This time they were focusing on the question of who gets to go to heaven. And the question was, only people whose sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ go to heaven. Do you agree or disagree with that sentiment? Only people whose sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ go to heaven. So this is an order of people who agreed with that sentiment. Black Protestants, 65%. Conservative Protestant or Evangelical, 64%. Mainline Protestants, 33%. Catholics, 29%. What I thought was interesting was non-religious people agreed with the sentiment 25% of the time. <laughs> they identified themselves as non-religious. 
but still agreed that you could only go through faith in Jesus Christ. So apparently, they're just gambling. I don't know. Like, they're thinking, like, yes, that's the only way to go, but I don't believe it. So what do you guys think? When we surveyed you, we said, my religion is the one true faith leading to eternal life. 70% of you said, yes, that's right. Many religions can lead to eternal life. We got 5%, and then we got both or neither, <laughs> like always in our surveys. Some survey bias accounts for like another 25% or so. That's good. Someday we're going to take a test-taking class and a survey-taking class, you know, just to make sure we all understand how to do that. It seems like every time we survey this group, we get more confusion. So let's go back to John for a moment and read what Jesus said, and then I'd like to hear from you. This is John 14, starting in verse 1 this time. Jesus speaking to his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way, the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is clearly having a discussion in the context of future things to come, of preparing a place for the disciples, of a return to take them to this place when Thomas asks, wait a minute, what do you mean we know the way? We don't know the way. And he's saying, I am the way. I am truth and I am the life. He also says something very curious at the end here. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is very important in John's gospel because the writer begins with famous words that we've seen. So let me just bring them to mind in John 1. I'm citing John 1, verses 1, 14, 18. I've kind of put them together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John then goes on in verse 18 to say, no one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. You see the parallel directly with John 14, where he says, from now on you do know him and you have seen him. And John is consistent that it is the one and only, the Word, the Logos, Jesus Christ, who is God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He's the one that we've seen. He's our example. And Jesus, again, those words are echoed in John 14. You do know Him and you have seen Him. I am Him. I'm right in front of you, Thomas, and all the other disciples. So the reason I'm pointing this out is it's pretty unmistakable that at least the Gospel writer of John is making it clear he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. 
Jesus' words, no one comes to the Father except through me, and now you have seen him. You have known him, the Father, because you have known me and seen me. Paul in Colossians makes the similar case in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. All the fullness of God dwells in him, is what Paul is saying. He even goes on, trying to explain the importance of Jesus. Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So we have agreement in different places. Paul writing, John writing in two different places in his gospel about the importance of Jesus. Not only to salvation, but to reconciliation, to the creation itself. So we shouldn't just focus just on salvation. It's everything. Nothing that was made was made without him. All right, that's the case. We're not just dealing with just another prophet, another person. This is God himself. And that's what makes this exclusive claim troubling for some and is the embrace for others in Christianity. Here he's saying the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes. But it goes further than that. Even John goes further than that in John 1.1 and forward. But even in the text in Colossians to show that we're not talking about a prophet, somebody who's a guru, somebody who's a philosopher, somebody who's showing the way, somebody who's even called by God in some other way. We are talking about God. And that sets up a very unique situation where if you believe in God, as many, many people say they do, in the Pew Forum, I mean, the, the number of people who believe in God is, is very high, 80, 85%, something in that neighborhood. The difference here is Why is Jesus the only way? One answer is because he's God. Yes? I don't see an exclusive claim here. I mean, it doesn't say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one who doesn't say they believe or say a prayer cannot come to the Father. All it says is that no one comes to the Father except for me, which, which to me could just mean I am that process by which all things are reconciled to God. It doesn't say... No one who doesn't believe in this certain way doesn't come to the Father. I, I, I hear your point because this by itself, you could say, you could still come through him and we don't even understand what that means. That's the, you're saying that, right? Okay. 
It's fair. I don't think it stands, though, because I think John elsewhere, including in John 3.16, is establishing that way. He's saying, whosoever believes in him, that's, that's part of it, right? But I, I agree with the point that it's not contained here and that we've had to look at this and understand what it means. Do you have a comment? Yeah, if you had to plot it, other than Jesus, there would really be no point of him dying on the cross. Like, that's just my comment on that. Yeah, I think Jeremy's response, not to put words in his mouth, is that that act of dying on the cross is part of an act of reconciliation that the Son voluntarily chose to take on from before time existed, right? And then it happened in our time at the event of the cross, but Jesus, from the beginning was destined to be the person that reconciles us to the Father. I do agree with that concept, but, but I don't exactly know that I go as far as Jeremy does by saying it's happened and that just by it happening, that's opened the door for everybody, that everybody just walks through because it happened. We're surely overlooking Paul's ministry and, and the writings that he has um, that do seem to, to proclaim pretty strongly that, that there is this needed belief, like for example, Romans 10. Um, we looked at that passage of, of you know, how, they, how can they come to believe if they haven't heard, but even prior to that, you can wrestle with what he means by this, but in verse 9 he says, because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. Um, and he goes on to continue, I mean, the, these things, sure, and Paul's life and, and the early work of the church sure seem to indicate that there was a very exclusive way, because I don't think they would have been giving their lives for such a, you know, I mean, like, they, they sure seemed that it was of dire importance and that uh, there was this needed belief and, and this need to hear that belief and respond to this Christ. Okay, comment? Um, I think one thing is that he's talking to, in this passage, he's talking to his disciples and saying that <clears throat> you've seen me, and because you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but we don't see Christ. We've never seen this person who has revealed himself and revealed the full glory of God. We've only seen um, images of him through, through what people have written down about him, narratives, Jesus, and so how are we to follow that way if we haven't seen him? Do you think that lets us off the hook in your mind? No, but I'm just saying that he's saying that you... You know, you've seen me, so you've seen the Father, and I'm, you know, I'm showing you the way. Yeah. Okay, Philip? Well, I mean, I think in response to that, like, the seeing is definitely significant that he's talking to the disciples there, but, like, that's not, I feel like that's sort of more of a minor point to this idea of knowing him, and I, I still think we can know Jesus even without sort of living at the same time. Um, I mean, we can always bring up, like, so, like, well, there are things written about him, and so I couldn't really ever know him, but to the degree in which you can know anything or any person ever, I mean, I think there's some level which we can know Jesus and therefore know God, and, and that point still applies to us without even seeing him. We have that tradition all through Scripture, starting in the Old Testament. I mean, there were things that God did, and his commandment was remember and tell your children and commemorate them with this feast so that we'll always retell it. But I think your point is still true, which is we're somehow removed from it, maybe that we feel like that might get us off the hook, or it's less impactful. But I think that that would be a strange stipulation for us to put on God to say, we want you around all the time, in the form of Jesus, if nothing else, right? But I think Jesus took care of that, to be honest. I mean, he says, I have to go away so that I could send the advocate, the spirit. 
right? Who will be with you and who will dwell inside of you, right? Like that idea is in some way, I don't know. I mean, some of us would probably think I'd rather Jesus just was around, right? But Jesus seemed to think that sending the Spirit was a better deal for us because he was almost couching it in the I must go so that he can come. Like he seemed to think that was better for us. Jeremy? Um, to Morgan's point, I would say that it might be interesting to consider what confessing with your lips or your deeds actually is. In other words, is it actually saying those specific things that Paul was saying, or does it mean something else? Does it mean confessing in the way that you speak with others? Or is it a type of confession that is tied closer to an idea of discipleship or, or, or something like that? Let me back up and ask it this way. Taking Jeremy's point about, like, we don't know exactly what it means to confess with your lips or believe in your heart, like, all right, whatever it means for a moment, let's just take a, whatever you think it means. Is there anybody in here that thinks you can confess something other than Christ and find eternal life? It's somebody. I mean, at least statistically, some of us should believe that. Nobody? Like, you just happen to be a practicing Jew. Or you are a practicing Muslim. Or... Any other faith, somebody say, yes, I believe that could lead you to eternal life apart from Christ, forgetting what it means to actually accept Christ. Just You don't accept them at all, but you accept something else. I think if they never heard. Yeah, take that exception out. So we're like, we're, we're, let's be clear what we're talking about. After the resurrection, and you've heard, but you just believe in a different faith so that we can remove all the exceptions that we can't speak with certainty about. Anyone? Yes? You think, like, it's possible or maybe, or where are you at? It's possible. It's possible? Okay. Any justification, like any thought or any, like, reason behind it? Yeah. I think that it's not for us to judge necessarily. I think, I, I think it's true that they have, you have to confess Jesus. But for me to tell, because to, I don't know their heart, I don't know what God's done in their life. You know, so I don't know that I could go up to someone who's Muslim and just automatically say, like, you you're going to hell, or, you know, like, I think there's a level of grace in that that we just don't really know. But for the most part, I'd say yes, that you have to Okay. I think telling people, oh man, you're going to hell, it's kind of a harsh statement, like, just in general. I mean, speaking the word in itself. I'm not asking anybody to go tell anybody anything. I just want to know what you believe, right? Because I don't even know that the do not judge passage you know, I think that's become a societal value. And we've taken the biblical value and twisted it to a societal value. But I don't even want to go down that path. You don't have to judge them. I just want to know if you believe, like you have somebody who comes up to you and says, I am a practicing Jew. I'm a practicing Mormon. I'm a practicing Jehovah's Witness. I'm a practicing Muslim. I'm whatever they are. And I really do believe in my faith. We've got two people so far who are saying, yes, I think. I don't know for sure, but I think it's possible that that could lead to eternal life. Yeah. Are, you, are we connecting eternal life with heaven? You know, the reason I didn't define it is because the first the Pew Research Forum, like when they did it, they didn't define it. And I went looking in the actual report to see if they put a footnote or defined it. But I think the way they meant it was some concept of heaven. So if you're trying to say like eternal life, like, yeah, they're in hell, that's eternal life. Like, no, I'm not I'm trying to go down that way. That's, that's not where I'm going. I'm just saying like, yes, let's connect it to a concept of that is the right end goal, and you get rewarded to the maximum you get in whatever religion, tradition you're in. 
All right, so yeah, that's a good clarification. Otherwise, we'd all raise our hand and go, yeah, everybody has eternal life. It's just really bad for them, you know? <laughs> all right, so that means that a couple and the rest of us presumably think, okay, it's through Christ. Let's talk about what that means in case somebody asks you. If Jesus says, I am the way, what does that mean to you? If somebody came up and asked you, he says, I'm the way, and somebody says, what does Jesus mean? Is, he just, is this just like a synonyms? The way, the truth, the life. There's the same thing. He's just saying them over and over and over. What's the way mean? I'm guessing in a way like believing in him. No, I mean, I'm, I'm not expecting everybody you know, to go around and perform some kind of miracle. Like, I think like to follow him, like have faith, pray. Some of the things that he did, like he would kneel down and pray, ask the Father for guidance. And there's a few other things that I'm trying to remember right now. Okay. I think I would, I mean, if you go back to the Colossians passage, that Jesus is, that we have been disconnected from God somehow, and that the only way that we can reconnect with him and be reconciled with him is through Jesus. Not, not anything that we can do, not anything that any other gods can do, because only one can reconnect us to God. Okay. Well, what I'm concerned with, I don't know where the exclusivity comes from. Is it something that comes from Jesus, or is it something that comes from the church? Is it a theological statement? I mean, is it? You know, that's that's my running objection. Is that, I mean, even the text that we're using, John, is very. I mean, you don't see these kinds of claims in, in the other texts and the other gospels, which is presumably came before. Right, but that's why I put Colossians up, which presumably came before even the gospels. So, I mean, that idea that we always just say, ah, oh, John's just a crazy guy out there, just throw that gospel out. I, I reject that. He is writing a more theological manuscript, but he is drawing on things that were being developed, and then you have Paul writing even way more than John ever does in his epistles about the concept of Jesus and salvation, making it even more express. They certainly predate John. They predate probably all the other gospels. So already, within just a few years, 20, 30 years, we already have Paul reciting all these epistles to people saying, this is the path. I would argue that, that that reconciliation connection already existed prior to its act on earth, which means all we're really talking about is the act of reconciliation, not the act of believing in the reconciliation, just the fact that you're now reconciled, but all of creation is reconciled. Like, without that reconciliation in place to begin with, there's no creation. But even if you don't believe, like in this specific uh, belief system or this set of beliefs that, that out of God's providence and God's reconciliation to the world, you know, we share in some kind of common existence. Okay. So I guess the question I would throw back to you is, if it's true that reconciliation is something that has happened or has always been, is that the same thing as just saying, so everybody's reconciled, like we don't have to have any kind of belief in Christ? Or do you think reconciliation and salvation are different concepts? Well, I would say first that Colossians is not going to prove your point. I, mean, I don't think the text you cited from Colossians really show any, any more exclusivity than, than, than other texts. Yeah, and before we go down that path, I just want to be clear. Text from Colossians is making the statement that Jesus is God. That sets them in a totally different category than any other faith claim. That's the uniqueness of Christ that gives him the supremacy over everything else. If that's true, that's one of the reasons exclusivity then results, because you're saying if he's God, there's only one God, and he is identified as God, then we don't have any other choices if we're pursuing God, because this is God. 
This is the God that's been revealed to us. This is the God that created everything. So it doesn't come right out and say in Colossians like, and I'm the only game in town. It's just saying, there's one God, and it's him. And that's making an exclusive statement. Like, there are no other gods. There's nobody else participated in creation. Nothing else was ever made. He made it all. It's only him. So that's why I'm asking that, are you saying that because that event already occurred and you reconciled this, that that's all that's needed? Or do you feel like there's something else that's needed for salvation? This is very important evangelism, because otherwise, what's the point? Again, even if we say, with, along with Colossians, that Paul's making the exclusive claim that Jesus, that Jesus is God and Jesus is the only person who could do this, that still doesn't say, and you have to believe this to be true. That's not what it said. It just simply says that this is the activity that has, and only Jesus could do this activity, that is to reconcile the world. But that doesn't say, and you've got to believe that. I believe that's clear in Paul's writings elsewhere. I'll leave it there, that he makes that claim of taking that next step of what does it mean. Let's go back to this question. Someone's asking you, what does it mean for Jesus to be the truth? Does it just mean that he's true and everything else is false? What does that mean? I've found that I've asked this question to a number of people and we've come up short. People say, like, I am the way, the truth, the life. Like, they, they can cite that verse, but what does it mean? And even the word mean bothers me because it has so many implications. I think the best way to do it is like the way. I think Jesus shows us the way that God acts in the world. Remember, he's talking in this passage about you have known him and seen him because you know me and see me. That's the implication. So we should be able to figure out his mission, his priorities, and the way that we love. It's all about love in the end. Like one is to bring the gospel to the people today, now, in their present life. I think Brittany last week made this reference to this passage, Luke 4, 18 and 19. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That was like the first proclamation of the gospel, to preach good news to the poor. What is that good news that they're supposed to receive? He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So one mission, mandate, priority of this new way of living is live like Jesus. He focused on bringing the good news to people today. He focused on seeking and saving the lost. Another example from Luke, the story of dining with Zacchaeus. If you remember, Zacchaeus invites him over. And after seeing Jesus, this sinful tax collector Zacchaeus stands up and says, Today, Lord, I'm going to give away half of my possessions. And if there's anybody that I've defrauded, I'll pay him back four times as much. Jesus' response is, today salvation has come to this house. Not because Zacchaeus was going to give away money, but because he realized that Zacchaeus had been transformed and changed by his relationship with Jesus and saw a new way of living. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. There's another priority of what Jesus' way is all about. Help people now. Declare the year of the Lord's favor, bring the Jubilee, bring forgiveness and, and, and reconciliation, bring freedom for the oppressed, sight to the blind, and also seek and save the lost. That's an evangelism mandate. That's a great commission type mandate to go out and find those who've been disconnected from the kingdom of God and start to bring them back in. Here's the other one. There's many others, by the way. I just picked a couple of them. Another way we follow Jesus on the way is to serve others in humility. 
in, in Philippians, we know that Jesus, it says, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I do agree with Jeremy's point that the Reconciliation Act was something that Jesus decided on from the beginning, from before time existed, but he still had to continually make that decision to actually die on a cross. And there was a decision, voluntarily, finding that equality with God is not something to take advantage of, but to surrender that in humility. And so we surrender entitlement in humility. We're supposed to follow Jesus on the way, in the same way surrendering our entitlement. We struggle with entitlement. Every one of us feels like we're entitled to something, something we're owed something, we're deserved something. I've said before, the Sermon on the Mount is meant to shake people out of entitlement. And Jesus himself, who wrapped himself with a towel and knelt down and washed the disciples' feet, demonstrated this type of surrender of entitlement as just a small, tiny, symbolic act compared to surrendering the very nature that he was entitled to keep and becoming a humble servant, and yes, even dying, when he himself found that equality with God is not something to be used to his advantage. How about the truth? Knowing the truth means knowing Christ. He embodies truth, and he is the truth. You know, we live in a world of competing truths. Everybody thinks that there's a truth out there that belongs to them or something, but Jesus is making the claim in a way that he is truth. John makes it earlier. He is the word. He is the logos of God, this kind of living, active word. Again, John 1.3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light that points people to life is him, the word, Jesus, the truth. The truth doesn't belong to us because Jesus is the truth. If people have, from whatever source, gleaned parts of that truth and acted rightly in that way, then they're at least facing the truth. That doesn't mean that it leads to the kind of thing that we believe in that says, yes, and that will justify you. But I believe that that is a pointer back to him. I mean, if he is the truth, then anybody who participates in any way is participating in part with Christ. The reason I say truth testifies about Jesus is, again, here's the verse I was referring to earlier. When the advocate comes, says Jesus, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. The very spirit of truth, all truth that God will speak, will testify about Jesus. This is a quote that I think might disturb a few of you. The guy who wrote this is John Frankie. He's actually, I've barred quite a few of his observations for this. He says, some things are true for everyone, regardless of their social location, beliefs, or particular opinions. Not everything that is claimed to be true is actually true. Some beliefs and convictions, no matter how sincerely held, are false and untrue and must be opposed. When I read that last night, I just kind of stopped. I thought, man... That's going to rustle some feathers because he's an older writer writing to a group of young adults who believe like, what? Oppose people. That's ridiculous. Like you don't ever actually oppose somebody or make them uncomfortable for what they believe. That would be crazy. But that's exactly what that last line says. Some beliefs and convictions, no matter how sincerely held, 
are false and untrue and must be opposed. However, we must assert this in humility because the Christian message is not our truth, but it is a divine gift to us as it is a gift to the world. We who have maybe discovered part of that truth, we don't own it, we don't have a corner on the market on it, the truth is still Christ. How about the life itself, just some observations? I've said before that one of the things that's the hardest to grasp but the most beautiful to understand, if we could, is that we're being invited into the relationship with a triune God. That's the life that he intended for us. Here's some steps along the path. We know that God lives a life of love between Father, Son, and Spirit eternally before the creation of time. But God doesn't create us so that we can love him. He's not lonely. He doesn't need pets. That's not the purpose of the creation if you look at it deeply. I've argued that it's God's grace. It's poured out on us that he's actually giving us something we don't even deserve, which is an ability to participate in the love that is shared in his triune nature. He's inviting us into that relationship. And Jesus is the one that comes to bring that invitation to that kind of life. When he says that I am the life, he's already living it. He's been living it eternally. He's been living it in the midst of this triunity. But he's inviting us along that way in this life now, pointing at the truth, which is him, and being invited into a life with the triune God. That's a lot in one small phrase. So our response is, as the church we should kind of be a foretaste of the life that God intended for everyone. And for evangelism's sake, we cannot simply invite others to exchange their beliefs for ours. That's what I think my main criticism would be of the way that evangelism has worked in our churches. We're asking people to surrender their worldview so they can take on ours. This is not a swap of worldviews. This is not a swap of beliefs. That's not compelling for people, especially in a world that's pluralistic where everybody has their own opinions and their own truths and their own ideas, and we're not supposed to infringe ours on anybody else's. At least those are the social constructs that we've created for ourselves, and now we have to live under them. It's not about inviting others to exchange their beliefs for ours. It's inviting them to a life lived here and now, the way that Christ invited us to live, that culminates in a new creation that culminates in an ultimate reconciliation of everything. Yeah? It seems to me at this point that all we're really doing is playing theological connect the dots. So, you know, you've been living a good life, you've modeled your life in the same way that Christ compels his followers to live his life, and you just don't really understand that this is how it really works. Okay, now you do good, dots are connected, now you're, you're truly aligned. Which to me seems kind of like, all right, why is that any more special now that they have like the added theological knowledge that the truth in which they're participating in is a, a Christian one or, or is one that is reconciled through this divine manifestation of Christ? I mean, like you gave, like I gave the example of a, a Buddhist, right? Who was a person who is impressed by the Eightfold Path or whatever, and, and they participate in that tradition by doing a thing 
that Christ also compels his followers to do to some degree. And as you also mentioned, that all truth is God's truth, right? And that we don't have like a claim like on truth per, per se. That it's logically possible then that someone who is not a Christian but is living a life that a Christian should be living is participating in that truth, which is God's truth. And so that all we would be doing by explaining Christ to them would be playing theological connect the dots. Right, but that, that connect the dots is actually very, very important because like you see Paul with certain Jewish believers who had like almost all the beliefs in place. They just couldn't connect the dot or Peter on the day of Pentecost standing up and connecting that final dot, which is a point that Morgan made earlier. Like you have to actually speak sometimes to connect that dot saying like, Men of Jerusalem, like you've like long understood all these things about the prophets, but what you just missed was that the long-awaited Messiah was this person, Christ Jesus, who you crucified and now had ridden from the dead. Like that was the connected dot for that group of people. Paul, when he goes to the Areopagus, has a different connected dot. He's like, okay, I'm going to use some cultural elements here. You've been worshiping this unknown God. I'm going to try to use that to bring the gospel message to you about there is this one God who you don't know, and I'm going to make him known to you. Yeah, I think that's exactly where we come back to what our role is in preaching the good news is some people may have already stumbled on much of this and our role is to connect the dots. Now, why would we connect the dots? That goes back to the idea that there is at some point and however it's done, a moment when you identify yourself with Christ and say, yes, I am a Christ follower and I do believe with my heart and I'm behind you. There is that element of faith. However you believe it is that a person comes to be identified with Christ, Jesus is saying, that's the only way to the Father. And we're saying that, sure, you might find these things, but if you have to help somebody connect the dots, brilliant. That would be great. Yeah. If you're talking about, especially when you're focusing on the life for which we were created, if we actually believe that you can have relationship and commune with Father, Son, and Spirit, that, that's what you're inviting people to. So, I mean, you can do lots of, I know lots of wonderful people um, that, that don't believe in God and that, has, that doesn't stop them from doing lots of wonderful things, but they are missing out on the life. Like that, that's, that's the thing that, that should be unique and that we should be very available to, to saying, yeah, you're missing out on God himself. Um, and that's what we invite people into is, is, is to partaking in the divine, <laughs> you know, and, and that's a very powerful mystical, spiritual thing. But they're already doing that. They're already a part of God's creation. And sure. they, they, it has been proclaimed. And if we say that they have some kind of understanding of the truth, then in some essence, they stand in some relationship to God already. The question is, why does it have to be more? I'll answer. It's only because the act of reconciliation of Christ is not something that's done for you automatically by itself, that even though it's done completely, your part is to understand it and just respond in acceptance. Because otherwise, if I took your view, then we enter into a more universalist idea that just Christ has done everything, which both sides affirm, and nothing more is needed, which is where the second side would demur. And then I think that we go back to something Philip has urged us for a long time. Then we have to talk about what the purpose of the church is. You know, so Philip's getting closer and closer all the time <laughs> to getting his way. You know, 
But if it's true that Christ has reconciled everything and it's all done, paid, signed, sealed, delivered from the beginning of time, and he just showed up to do his little temporal act of dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and then running back up to heaven, if that's really true and nothing more is needed, then we really do have to examine the purpose of the church because we might as well just fold the whole thing and just go do good works. But I think there is that part where I would say a substantial majority believe that there must be some act on our part if it's as little as just accepting it. Yeah. I think because I, I hear you on how that logic makes sense, but I think the piece that's missing is can we actually live the way that Jesus told us to without Jesus? Because cause I think that we can live, we can do the good works, and I think part of the frustration is because a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus do it better than we do. And like loving people, serving the poor, um, being good people, but there's something that Jesus also calls to, which is surrendering our, our needs to him, or depending on him and coming into a relationship with him, which is also a part of the huge part of what he's, you know, he says, following me. He says, come, you know, come be with me, come meet the Father, come know the Father. And so we could do the good works part, maybe, but it isn't until we're fully in connection with the Father that we can actually do everything that he calls us to. Pretty strong point. Like, we're talking about evangelism and like using words like good news and like preaching the gospel. Like, at least as far as the narrative of Luke goes, this idea of instituting or inaugurating the year of our Lord, the year of jubilee, and like what that was for them, and like that's his main thrust. And then it goes into Acts like straight away. And so, like if that's what the church is being built around, that seems different um, than the way we're kind of like you know, preaching the gospel, and it's just like, that's more like telling people the doctrine of Christianity so that they can accept it, like, the idea of, like, some personal relationship with Christ, that, that language is never used in the Bible. But they're not exclusive. I mean, Jesus did all of those things. Like, because some of us tend to reconfigure Jesus where he was doing a lot of social action. Some of us reconfigure Jesus where he was doing nothing but dying on the cross. But Jesus was way more complicated than that. John himself says that I couldn't even write all the things that he did. Right? I mean, they couldn't, all the books in the world wouldn't fit all the things that he did. All right, well, let's just go off of that and just look at the four Gospels and what he did in there. It was a lot of things. He was teaching. He was discipling. He was healing. He was doing those things. And he was proclaiming things of the Lord. And yes, of course, he was also dying in the act of reconciliation. And then there was the resurrection. And then there was his commandments. And then there was sending the Spirit. I mean, he did a lot of things. We should have a holistic idea of what he did and try to do all of those things as much as we can as his disciples. We just tend to pick some because it's just easier. Or because our faith traditions or maybe our churches or whatever it is just go like, this is what we're going to focus on. It's just easier to go, right, okay, that's what it is. Give me three steps and one challenge. Okay, I can go home now. It's harder to sit with all of this. Every time we do it, you can feel it in this room. It's just so hard to put them all in our head and go, what am I going to do with all this? Yeah, we can get stuck in how we do it. We do it badly. That's easy. I really do believe there's some wisdom in understanding that we're not inviting others to exchange their beliefs for ours. That can't be what we're doing only. That misses the whole point of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. Is that It misses the whole invitation that we're in. We're not into just people believing something. We're into them participating the way that we've been asked to participate. That's really what we're inviting them into is a whole life with Christ who's going to be the person that reconciles them 
to this triune God. That's way bigger, right? And I think you'd agree that's so much bigger than the way we do it. Anyone else want to throw in a comment? Yeah, I think Brittany's point of the good news is important. And I mean, sure, I think the good news is Christ himself. It's the life, death, and resurrection that, that, that we serve and, and get to know a living God who is here and now. And I think that is what we proclaim, that, that there is a God, that there is, and, and that he's alive and well, and, and, and he has invited us into a relationship. I mean, that is the essence of the good news. And yeah, how that plays out and the intricacy and the complexity and the nuance. And I mean, there are so many wonderful things that come with it that are very difficult that good Christians disagree on on how to even live that out. Fine, that's great. But Jesus is the good news. Like, and, and so figuring out how to partake in, in that is, is, I think, what we're supposed to do. And I think we grow in a process of learning how to even relate with God. And I don't know if we ever figure it out, but I mean, it's... it's Jesus is the good news. That, that's it. Okay, cool. Just push back on a little bit on that because I'm more not sure. Like I don't understand. Like, like what you said. It's like, oh well, the good news is that Jesus is there. Therefore, there is a God. He's real and he's alive. And but I mean, like people knew that before Jesus was around. Like Abraham believed that. And I mean, so that's not news at all. Like it was already there. Like, and there's some degree to which like, look, when we have a relationship with him, like Moses talked with him. You know, like. I don't talk with God, he doesn't talk to me. So, I mean, I feel like there's less of a relationship. So, I mean, like, I feel like that, that has to be defined and understood of, like, what is good about this, like, <clears throat> it is news. That, that is good news. Forgiveness of all sin or things like that. I mean, I, I would say that's, those are, you know, that's, and this goes back to Colossians and, and this reconciliation before God, where I would say without Christ, there isn't, that, that doesn't go on. I don't think God came in the flesh to do a good jig that wasn't necessary, right? Or, or to or put on a good show or something like that. Like I would say that event, as Jeremy pointed out, was, was initiated before creation began. Jesus was never plan B. That, that is good news. And, and that is good news to proclaim. I have personally, I feel very confident in saying, yes, this is great news. This is something that's unattainable in any other way. This is the life I believe that God calls me to. It's a relationship with him and it's through Christ. Let me close like this. I am sorry <laughs> that I've thrown out all this kind of complicated thought. It would be easier if I just said, if you ain't got Christ, you're going to hell, right? <laughs> and a lot of churches take the easier approach. They make it very simple for people to follow. Like, there are people out there who don't believe in Jesus, and they're going to die, and they're going to go to hell. That's the end of their justification for why evangelism is even important. You know, it's not that I don't believe that. It's just that if we're really going to be honest to ourselves, we would just be following some rote script or some guilt method, and we'd be missing the richness of what God has actually done. And we'd be trying to focus only on trying to get people into some future heaven instead of inviting them into a life now right now, that begins here, where we're slowly transformed into the image of Christ over time, that we're slowly transformed to have his heart. And then when we are actually all together in the place of recreation and renewal and reconciliation and the new earth and all the things that are planned, we've already been on that path already. And we get to participate now and bring people in now. The easiest way I could say it is, what is the best way for us to live? What was the intention of his creation? 
And it is to live in this life that he's inviting us into out of just his sheer grace. There's no reason he needs to do it, but he decides he wants to. The good news is telling people that because most of us, even people in the church, we're living totally disconnected with that understanding. We're just living life the way we want to and kind of sometimes putting a little bit of Christian cologne on on top of it to kind of just have the aroma of faith. But Jesus is asking us to do something much, much deeper. And he's inviting us to something much, much grander, which is today, start living the way I did. Preaching good news to the poor and to the captives and to everybody else. Serving others with humility and with a towel wrapped around me unto death on a cross. And yes, going out and seeking and saving the lost and many, many other things. That's what we should be inviting people into. I do believe that this statement does remain strong. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I leave those thoughts kind of hanging a little bit because they should bother us for a long time. So let's close up and pray for a moment. I'm going to leave some extended time for silence in this prayer. Lord God, we first come to you in a spirit of confession. Just the fact that we have continued to live in rebellion, preferring our own ideas and our own choices, living on our own autonomy, rejecting the very reasons for which we were created, or Lord, just not even having the will to do the things that we know that we ought to do following your example. Lord, we offer those things to you in confession right now. Lord, if it's really true that you offer a way, if you are the truth, if you've invited us into a life for which we were created, if we believe those things, Lord, and yet we've held them onto ourselves, then Lord, give us a heart for other people. If we say we love other people, help us, Lord, to love them enough to at least help them to understand who they were meant to be in you, Lord. Lord, I dare pray that you would bring people to mind right now in this room that we need to be engaging with to introduce them to you and to the life that was meant for them. Lord, will you shine a light into the darkness of our heart? Will you deal with the junk that is in there? This Wednesday, Lord, we start Ash Wednesday in the Lenten season, all the way up to this act that we point to, this act of reconciliation, of selfless love, life laid down for us, Lord. Will you continue to minister to us throughout this entire Lenten season and remind us again of why we're here? Soothe our minds, be a balm for our doubts, 
Bring us back to a place where we're completely excited about who you are, where we fall in love again with the God that we chose to serve, where we reconnect to the place you want us to be, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for this group, for the questions that we raise, for the struggles that we have, for the impact that it has. But Lord, most boldly, just for the idea that we know you. We are left without excuse because we know who you are. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us a spirit who's testified about you and we believe. Lord, now give us the ability to tell others about you to invite them into this life. We pray this in your name. Amen.